1: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. Before we get to this conversation with my friend Pat Quinn, I want to talk to you about Axwax. Axwax is a company out in Oregon, and what they've done is they created a product for axes, for hammers, for anything you even whatever you want, whatever you got, it's it's food safe, and it's all natural. And I know what you're saying: axes, food safe? Who gives a shit about that? Well, listen, I know a lot of uh, culinary knife makers, like uh, Jason Knight, uh, Nick Anger, Quentin Middleton, Josh Scott, Josh Smith, Josh Weston, Josh Scott. They're making culinary knives. I'm making culinary knives. And I want to be able to make sure that I have something that I can tell my customers is food safe. That means something to me. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to axwax.us, and you can go get yourself a couple pucks of axewax. And then if you put in the promo code fullblast10, you're going to get 10% off. So go ahead, get yourself some Axe Wax, get yourself that 10% off. And thank you very much, Axe Wax, for supporting this podcast. I certainly appreciate it. And without any further ado, I want to welcome the person that I believe represents the modern day blacksmith. Pat Quinn is the executive director of the Center for Metal Arts in Johnstown, PA. And I'm thrilled that you're here. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm, it's, I got be honest with you. There's about 20 inches of snow outside. I've mm-hmm. been snowed in my house. I'm recording from my closet <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit, dist- it's not the same as what I normally do. But other than that, it's fine. I got no complaints.
2: Mm-hmm. Is is
1: still coming down out there. Or? It's getting worse. It is was, it? we had to send my wife out. Uh, my wife, uh, send my wife out at four. We woke up at four o'clock in the morning to shovel and, and it's every two hours I've been out shoveling. It's, we're going to look at look, 20 inches all day, and it makes me wonder why I'm here in the Northeast. Which <laughs> yeah, I mean, I
2: was, I was in your neck of the woods over the weekend, um, and I skidaddled out of there yesterday to, to beat the storm, so I did get stuck out there. For sure. Where were you in, in New York? I was in uh, New Jersey with my girlfriend, Erin.
1: Oh, there you go. Yeah, there but go. she's
2: right outside the city, so it's same weather
1: pattern. But you're used to this kind of weather because you're from Vermont.
2: Yeah, but I had a you? ton of stuff I had to do in Johnstown so I could get stuck. Usually, I stay till Monday,
1: but I was like, I felt like I was gonna be able to get out of there, stay till Monday. No, but I'm saying that you're used to this weather growing up in Vermont.
2: Oh, of course, but I grew up in Connecticut.
1: Oh, you did.
2: Yeah, I oh, just moved to Vermont when email became invented. That's why it's hand forged BT.
1: There you go. And there it just kind
2: of stuck, but I like it because it, you know. A lot of my roots, especially in foraging, um, are from Vermont. So, you know, I, I embrace it. And if I wanted to change it, I would have had to change it to NY and now PA. And it's just like, <laughs> I'll just keep the Vermont as a fun reminder of, of where I started for
1: well, that's, that, that gets me all clear. I just assumed that you were, you were like, you know, the funny thing is when I had Nick Angers on, we were talking about, uh, Vermont he grew you know, he lived in Vermont yeah. and I made a joke about your, your, your friend too, Jesse Savage. Yeah. And he made the joke that he's not really from Vermont. He's from Rutland, which is basically New York. So.
2: Rut Vegas, they call it. They call it Rut Vegas. They do. Cause it's the only place really that has like a strip,
1: like, uh, with- <laughs> Commercial store. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, poor, poor Jesse? He he he's got this incredible mustache. He's got this incredible demeanor. And now, now it's just going to be—it's just all Rutland jokes.
2: <laughs> I know, right? Man, those guys are the best, though. Those are two of the most supportive people for for Center for Metal Art ever. Uh, just to recognize that, both from Vermont, they both supportive. And oh, and I one thing that's interesting is really hard. To get a Vermonter out of Vermont, so huh. you know the fact that they come to CMA to teach is a big is a big deal for me because I lived there
1: for eight years. Vermonters are stuck in Vermont a lot of the time, so. Well, that's understandable. I mean, you know, they are you know live free and die hard, right? Isn't that the isn't that what's on the license plate? New, oh, Hampshire. That's, that's that's New Hampshire. That's New Hampshire. My bad. Sorry, Vermont. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> You know, one of the things that, when I think about your work, your work in general, and you know, P.S. Center for Metal Arts. I mean, it's the premier blacksmith and metalworking place in the East Coast, and probably in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things that I like, I think about you, I think about your work. I'm fascinated by how you have created this concept of the modern day blacksmith. Um, I know that you got your start as an art major Mm -hmm. at Vermont, uh, at, um, Albert college, Albert university, Alfred university. What made you go there?
2: Um, well, when I was looking at colleges and universities and stuff, I had a, there were a handful of, of art schools that I looked at. I had known that I wanted to, to pursue a career as an artist. And, uh, you know, I just had a handful of, of schools that really stuck out to me one of which was Alfred and then I did the you know I traveled around and visited them all and showed portfolios and all that kind of stuff and uh I just was Alfred felt like the right right fit for me um for a lot of reasons like you know at that point I didn't really even understand like what kind of artist I wanted to be so when I was touring through studios and stuff, I, I largely, I feel like didn't even really know what I was looking at. Like I remember going through the foundry at Alfred and, and not even understanding like where I was. Um, but I liked the location and I liked the faculty and, and the program seemed really good. So, I, you know, I
1: ultimately went with that for a lot of reasons. Do you think you went there with the intention to get in, involved with metalwork?
2: I did not, honestly, it, it, up until my sophomore year at Alfred, um, I was a 2D artist and I was hmm. doing mainly like uh, still life
1: drawings, charcoal and stuff like that. But you had this need for, uh, that's the thing about, especially when you're going, going to a, 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 a liberal arts college, like I went to a liberal arts college too and I wanted to be an art major because I, I thought that I was going to be a painter. And I ended up, you know, I ended up, I tell you, it was really dumb luck, really. I had to, as a freshman, I couldn't get into the the drawing or the painting class. So I got into 3D design thinking that it was how to draw three-dimensionally. I and mean, if you want to know how stupid I was, I mean, I, I did <laughs> show up and there's band saws and blue MIG welders everywhere. And I'm like, how am I going to draw over here? What am I supposed to draw over here for? I'm fascinated by the fact that um, what possessed what possessed you to kind of get into the kind of sculpture well, so, I I mean, that's a, a big step.
2: Yeah, I had. I mean, I had a pretty similar experience to what you just described. I mean, Alfred University um, is known for its ceramic program, uh, but it also has a really strong glass program as well. Right. And then, you know, freshman year is just freshman foundations, which they put you through. Like we used to joke around that it was art school boot camp or whatever. You do lots of crazy things in two dimensions and three dimensions, but you didn't really focus on a specific studio. And then, sophomore year, you got to start picking your studios. And I think um, I was interested in in checking out glass for no other reason than it seemed cool. Um, Hmm. But it was really hard to get into because people um, who actually already had glass backgrounds would go there for that. Um, And so, my second choice was sculpture. Just because I was taking two dimensional classes as well, you needed more stuff. So I thought, well, I'll try sculpture as my second choice, which naturally is what I got into because I couldn't get into glass. Thank God at this point. But, um, and then, you know, the first day, my professor was on sabbatical still. So the class was being taught by the shop tech. And he went over the, you know, the stick welder and talking about all he was talking about was like, Alternating current and direct current and like you know how dangerous it was, shit. And I was like, this is this like I looked. I was like, I looked over at my friend. I was like, I think there's any room in oil painting
0: open still because <laughs>
2: I don't really know what we signed up for here. But you know, obviously stuck with it and it and it became
1: really really interesting, fun stuff like that. I definitely remember. Trying to get online for the bandsaw, and then my friend Dan Levine said to me, he was by the MIG welder. He says, "Come over here, and kid, and don't wait for glue to dry." Mm-hmm. And all I could think of is remembering those old episodes of the A Team, where Mr. T. B. A. Baracus has got a, a, a oxyacetylene torch and he's like cutting out a tank. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not, "This is not for me. This is yeah. not for me." But you know what's interesting about the glass blowing thing is there are so sim- It's very similar. Um, the blacksmithing and glass blowing have a degree of similarities because it's very detailed. It's very, it's very, it's very, it's hard to be spontaneous. You have to have a very specific. Uh, order of operations for glass blowing and, and for blacksmithing so I, th- I I think that for me I, I actually my experience as, a, as an art major it was probably a, a slower poor experience because my professor wasn't a really good welder so I wasn't learning proper technique and, and stuff so it was more along the lines of what a lot happens to a lot of kids who go to art school is where they just they just learn how to turn it on and they learn the, the wire speed and the voltage and then they're, they're just like told to kind of make it happen and then they start talking about composition and stuff
2: so well i consider myself really lucky because without knowing any of that stuff it, as it turns out my professor at alfred was um you know i look back at it now and he he was interested in in craft and and i always hmm. ever since the beginning i always straddled the line between and craftsmen and um but fortunately for me at alfred uh, my professor was just as much in, if not more, into teaching you how to properly work with steel as you know what was as what the concept of your sculpture was. For instance, hmm. so it was always like you know craft first, concept second, and that was you know kind of I think what shaped me as somebody who's really interested in craft.
1: That is such an important thing that I believe that I missed out on. Mm -hmm. And I just remember taking drawing classes and it wasn't like, you know, you had very, very specific fundamentals you had to do in the classes. And in the sculpture classes, there were no, there weren't those fundamentals. Right. There weren't those fundamentals. It was like... You know, you'd go to critiques, and you'd see, you know, you could see the mig spatter and stuff like that, and you could see how, you know, maybe the, you know, looking back at a lot of things, you you didn't have that technical uh, foundation that was, you know, so critical to kind of growing as an artist, because you you end up having to deal with that hurdle later in life. Mm. I'm that's that's really amazing, and 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 I would imagine that that early foundation for you of technical proficiency and craftsmanship really was a much easier way to guide yourself towards the sculptures that you wanted to make
2: yeah i mean it i i look at my work now and it. i don't really think you can make something until you know how to make it so hmm. I, I mean i don't know if that makes sense or not but um yeah i mean it's all about yeah. craft well, of course. for me
1: well, you know, there is that, I mean, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you know all about it. I mean, your resume is like as long as uh, you can, you could make a, you know, you choke somebody with that resume <laughs> long. So I would imagine you've seen a lot of what we used to refer to as uh welding voodoo, which is that, uh, you know, a lot of times that uh, a lot of people who don't know how to weld or they don't know how to do things, they, they're, they're looking at it from the eyes of this, this is magic. And I don't understand it versus looking at it from a technical standpoint, mm um so you you finish off alfred Mm -hmm. and then you just made what made you decide to go to graduate school
2: uh a lot i mean there was a huge period of time in between the two programs which was like did a lot of shaping of of who i am now as a craftsperson and an artist um and that's when i lived in vermont so after alfred i graduated from alfred in 2004 i didn't go to carbondale until 2011 that whole Hmm. period of time i I lived in vermont and then the last three years i I wintered i wintered in new york city
1: summered in vermont (laughs) (laughs) what were you what were you doing what were you doing in between in between uh alfred and carbondale
2: um working for other metal workers and, and blacksmiths and learning about like you know, what it was like to be, a be a metal worker out, out, out of the educational context. Um, and more, I don't really like the term real world, but like, you know, having to use it needed to pay bills and and rent apartments and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, for eight years in between, well, I don't know, but a chunk of years in between, um, undergrad and graduate school, I I was working as a blacksmith or, or a welder or
1: something like that huh so when did you when was the the first time i ever saw a blacksmith was i had a shop in greenpoint brooklyn and i got introduced to uh i was working for a couple of metal workers and then we got introduced to a blacksmith out in long island city his name was tom ryan yeah i know him. he he was the first guy i ever met i guess i met him in 1999 1999 and he, the first time I ever saw forging was at Koenig Ironwork, where he was the lead man. Right. And he had these monster, I mean, from, you're talking about, I was, you know, I was in my early 20s. It was the first time I'd ever seen power hammers. I saw these giant guys. He had a pile of guys from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and these Polish guys from Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And they were making, they had a mold. They had a mold under a power hammer, and they were making pineapples. And my mind was blown. Yeah. My mind was completely blown. And the funny thing was with, with Tom is he, he explained, cause he knew I was working with these metal workers. He's like, why don't you work for me? And I'm like, well, I'm about to get married and I'm actually going to culinary school. And he said to me, he said to me, well, yeah, you know, I went to culinary school too. I went to the Cordon Bleu.' blue. And he says, don't you know that most blacksmiths are, most blacksmiths are good cooks. He's <laughs> like, that's, you don't have to go to culinary school work for me. <laughs> and it was like, to me, it was like, I never. I mean, it blew my mind. It completely blew my mind to the point where I, I couldn't even comprehend it. I couldn't keep it. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything. It was just this, on this monumental scale in my mind.
2: Well, his shop was the first shop I ever saw a hand-forged hammer. And huh. he was like, these are the hammers I made, and, and the other guys don't touch them. Like, they're my foraging hammer. And, and my mind was blown. I was like,
1: holy smoke. Yeah. I want to make my own hammer. Did you go see him at Koenig? Yeah, yeah. Right across the street, right and I worked for a
2: fabricator in Greenpoint. I mean, are we the same person? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I gotta have a feeling. Which fabricator were you? And I don't tell me. I know a couple of them. Some of them were real, real flea bags, and I work for most of them. Uh, my my
2: my guy was cool, man. It was a small shop, and uh, we did really quality work up in the city. There It was a fun, fun
1: experience. There's uh, when you ha- what. The whole, the whole Tom Ryan thing always stuck with me because that was my first experience seeing blacksmithing. And I'm like, yeah, like I said, I had no, I thought, you know, at the time I thought blacksmithing was for, for farriers. I mean, or I didn't even know the word farrier. I thought it was like horseshoe guys. And like, you know, it was like, it just, I couldn't, it couldn't compete, compute. And I know that that was a sticking point in my life that probably if I had made, if I had taken, he offered me a job. He hmm. offered me to come work for me. Don't go to culinary school. Work for me. And I said, ah, I gotta, I gotta do this. And I know that my life would have changed dramatically if I had had, right. he would have been the technical experience that would have changed my life. Right. Completely. Totally. Because as an artist, and this is getting back to you, going to get back to you. As an artist, I mean, I grew up, my, my dad was a painter and my sisters were sculptors. There was, a, there was a degree of freedom, but at the same time, I needed discipline. And one of the things that I needed in terms of discipline was discipline for my own self. But the work itself, I needed a degree of discipline that I didn't think that I had until I started forging. So... You're running around. You and I are, like, running in parallel, but not really in parallel. You're much younger than I am. We're not running. We're not, like, crisscross. We're crisscrossing over, like, you know, there's probably, like, a 10-year gap in between yeah. our, our footsteps. So yeah. let's not pretend, like, you know, we were just, like, we are this close. Right. Um, what did you think that you wanted to go to Car- uh, Carbondale to teach? Did you have a plan to teach?
2: Well, I, I mean, a lot happened after Alfred and before Carbondale, of which I did get interested in teaching. Um, And after Alfred, you know, I went to, um, just to kind of bridge the gap here about forging, because I didn't do any forging at Alfred at all. It was all fabrication, sculpture, hollow form, like volumetric shapes out of sheet metal. And then when I went, I went to Vermont almost right after graduation from Alfred. And I had applied for a job at this place called Hubberton Forge. Do you know that place? No. It's like a, it's a lighting, it's a lighting shop. So they do uh, chandeliers, table lamps and floor lamps and stuff like that. But it's, it's all forged lighting. And um, they, I applied for a job there in the welding department because, you know, I moved up there without a job and I needed to work and it seemed like a pretty cool situation. and. They didn't have any openings in the welding department. They only had an opening in the black shop and Hmm. um, they offered me that job and I obviously took it because I needed work. Not because at that point I was passionate about forging, but obviously that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And um, I had been, um, well, they put me right on the power hammer basically. I remember Hmm. the first, First thing I did was forage under these like large mechanical hammers and stuff. Really an eye-opening experience. And it was that place there that sort of shaped me as a blacksmith in a lot of ways as well.
1: Hmm. And do you think that, how would you say that, I mean, how would you, how did it, how did it change you?
2: Well, I never wanted to weld again, put it that way.
1: <laughs> well, that's a pretty good change. But that's a pretty uh,
2: change. But you know, it was a production shop, right? So it trained my eye. Like I had to replicate forgings. I had to like look at a master forging that was like painted red or something that hung up on the wall. And then I'd come in, in the morning and they'd give me a work order and it would be like, okay, you know, 150 tapers for this lamp out of this size material. And then you grab that taper off the wall and then you have to forge the taper to match that taper. Right. Both both in the cross section change and the bending and scrolling as well. So, you know, you, you do 150 of these things and then you take them over to the tuning table and they were always a little off from the master and you had to very carefully like tune them a little bit, like with a rounding hammer and a little hole in the table and get everything to match really perfectly. And I valued that experience a lot. And I also, you know, was like thrown into this production. Forging situation where the mindset was like, you know, I almost don't not me, but the, the people there like quality came second to speed. Hmm. And I felt like I had something to prove. So I always did quality before speed, right? So I was like, you know, put sticking it to the man, you know, I was like, yeah. like, why aren't you making it faster? And I was like, Well, I'll make my better, you know. Um, so it was like interesting in that respect as well. Hmm. But You know, it it had to straighten forgings like all the time. And it just, it was really good training my eye.
1: Why do you think he had something to prove?
2: I don't know. I just never liked that like sacrifice quality for speed attitude. Yeah. And, but it's tough
1: in a, in a, in a a capitalist society.
2: Yeah. Well, I came from that art school background and they were like, right oh, so you you know how to like create things and somewhat creatively. And so there was a lot of different people there. Some people would just sit at the hydraulic bender. Some people would just sit at the iron worker and punch holes. And so they, they saw something in me. I did those like twist baskets that they do all the time. And sure. like the forgings that needed a little bit more like, I don't know what to call it, but um, and I was like the youngest guy there. And I quickly latched on to the oldest guy there and became buddies with him. And he kind of showed me the ropes on like, all the hammers and all that kind of stuff. And
1: so. That's, 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 that's the toughest part. I think that uh, the toughest part is coming from art school and having this idea that you're making something with this degree of passion and you know what you need it to look like and you know what you want to do and you know that this isn't a speed issue. This isn't, you know, maybe you got a deadline or whatever, but you know that this is the speed issue and then you go out into the real world or not the real world. You don't like to say real. You go out into uh, society (laughs) or you go in the workplace and then the (laughs) expectation is not they won't celebrate Right. In most places where they're paying you by the hour. Right. You know, that degree of the degree of, you know, hey, man, listen, it looks awesome. But we, we lost dough on we lost money on this, that those two things can't live in the same room. Right. Or it's hard. I
2: mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. Like, uh, one thing I'm super into is efficiency. Right. Like, but you can take your time and still be efficient.
1: You're absolutely I mean that's what not that what blacksmithing is all about? Isn't quality. It? I mean
2: quality blacksmithing.
1: Yeah. I think I you know, I, it's it fascinates me too because um when I think about it, I do it is I try to separate out the artist and the craftsman. And it is hard to separate both out mentalities to a certain degree. Because you because as an artist and a craftsman, there is this you're dealing with the uncontrolled id, and you're dealing with you know your you know the the direction that you want to be going in, and at the same time you got to keep the lights on, you know. So it is definitely this uh, push and pull. It's a push and pull situation. But I'm you have to me have like for some reason I mean not for some reason I mean it's very clear you've been able to kind of straddle that and be as successful as you are.
2: Well, I, you know I have I have a lot of reasons why. It's happening the way it's happening for me, but one of them major contributors to being able to keep the lights on and keep my staff paid with the mentality that I have that it's not about speed is because I turned CMA into a not for profit. Let's, we're
1: going to, you we're going to get into the, the interesting. Too far? The interest,
2: <laughs> did I did I go too far too quick?
1: <laughs> no, you didn't go too far too quick. I'm I'm just trying to like I'm just trying I have I, you're a fascinating guy. You know the funny thing is to the listeners, poor Pat thought that he was going to be boring. There's nothing boring about this whatsoever. I'm just looking at it like <laughs> this is going to be a long one. So, that's and, fine. And let's let's do it. What's interesting to me too is another thing that's interesting to me too is when you talk about speed and efficiency. I happen to have bought a hammer from you. And I noticed that your prices are very very reasonable mm-hmm. in regards to what you see a lot of forged hammers are going for so that also to me makes it much more interesting because it makes it more approachable so once again we've cre- you've created this kind of you've created this ability to kind of straddle the fence between quality qu- quality and price and efficiency and being an artist and being a craftsman and being in business and being in uh you know this this you're a fascinating guy mm-hmm. i just want to tell you i'm you're fast when i bought that hammer i was just like it's a pretty good price damn good price How,
2: when, when when did you buy a hammer i can't remember. yesterday did you really
1: yeah wow. come on man can, I, can, I, can I, you yeah. Okay. <laughs> I a hammer and a shirt. Just remember XL. I remember XL, XL shirt and a two point five hammer. You know, if I, this wasn't this wasn't me trying to get something out of you. it. I was just you know. No,
2: that's great. I I'll, I'll ha- I don't have any in stock, so I'll be worry, making it for you. They, they, I was
1: just don't. I'll don't stamp worry. something silly Listen. on the side. You could please stamp some, for sure stamp something silly, but my, <laughs> my, my, my intention wasn't to bring that, you know, so that was a total humble brag, but I, it was, I wasn't meaning to do that. I was just fascinated by it because, you know, I think that I find that in general, in regards to pricing, I think pricing, I think that, you know, you can make something and spend a lot of time on it and just also put into the price you know, all the years of experience, you know, yeah. all the years and the toil and the, the, like I said, like I said to the listeners, if you go to patquinn.com and look at his resume, you're going to get some time on your hands. <laughs> He's been throughout there. So the fact that you're able to kind of like also make things approachable is, is extro- you're a very interesting guy.
2: Well, I probably should raise the prices, but we don't really well, make that many hammers anymore for right, sale. Well, but
1: um, spoiler alert. It's <laughs> no, yeah, got, got till Friday. You get got, got till now. Friday to change your prices. <laughs> yeah. You got till Friday. It's Monday. You got four days. You change your prices before before I won't say what the price was. Don't worry. Whatever it is, it was the price.
2: No, so, I'm not gonna raise the price.
1: So so here's so here's the question. <laughs> the question is, I feel that you were you have a degree of drive that a lot of people don't have. And, and with this podcast, I've, I've found that most of the people i talk to, or people I've talked to in the past, who have more than just, I wanted to make this, they have a drive they've had since they were a child. Part of me believes, and this is, there's, this is just my own speculation, is you always wanted to teach. And I think that a lot of times when people do go to graduate school, or to get an MFA, or seek f- farther, uh, farther education, it is to be a teacher um, you've been teaching everywhere. And I just want to get a a taste of what it was like at Carbondale.
2: I did go to Carbondale. Um, well, I did go to grad school specifically, obviously Carbondale was attractive because of the teaching component there. But when I was looking at going to graduate school, you know, I had lived in Vermont for quite a while. And then I started doing the New York city thing in the winters, which was fun, but I was really dying to make sculpture again and um, I felt like grad school was a good opportunity and that's why I kind of like having that space between undergrad and grad was like I got all this experience working for all these other blacksmiths and all these other shops fabricators and I was able to like take that and use it in my grad school experience to help me create sculptures but it was definitely uh, the teaching component was like a big big part of it um, that was attractive for sure. And when I was looking at grad schools, I had no idea about Carbondale. And I just was talking to, I met somebody along the way somewhere who had went there for forging. And, and I had, um, they said, there's a, a school out there that has a, a master of fine arts that you major in blacksmithing. And, and once I heard that, I was like, this, that's thats the place I got to go. So I worked hard
1: um, on that application, obviously, and and making that a reality. Do you think that when you were working on your sculpture, especially going into graduate school, when I look at your work, I see a direction that is something that most metal worker worker, uh, sculptors miss. I find that I, I have a real hard time with found object sculpture. Me like, too. I you know, can't stand it. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and I think that there's a lot. I mean, if you look at people like, I mean, starting out with, you know, David Smith is like my, is my first taste in regards to, you know, <laughs> taking found object arts. You're laughing. I, no, have you, of, been to,
2: have you been to Storm King? There's a David Smith sculpture in Storm King where, where it's literally one huge component of it is welded together forging thongs. So I, so I right figured, there I was checked him off the list so I was like I'm done with you
1: I listen but you, here's the thing here's the thing you, I understand it I, just, I know that area because actually my old mentor had a sculpture there Lee Tribe had a sculpture there and I actually worked on there's actually I don't know if you ever you never noticed there but there was a there's a giant bench made out of uh, quarters like welded quarters hmm. uh, TIG welded quarters I worked for him for a little bit that's a Johnny Johnny Swing hmm. um, but if you look at that concept of found and you you see the other thing is, is you you have to step back a hair because you're a little bit too far into you know metalworking your metalworking experience puts you in that position to be able to say, I get the tongs in there. I got to go out. You know, you can tell if he arc welded it, you can tell you have a little bit higher of a, uh, of an expertise in metalworking to, to, to make that decision. A lot of people, when they see that stuff, they're just like, okay, got, all you have to do is get a, go to the scrap yard, grab a couple pieces of pieces, angle, angle iron, throw some welds down here, put a little arc in there. And then there you are. I think that to me, the problem I've always had with found object, uh, with the exception of, you know, a lot of, you know, like, um, with, with the, I'm going to stick with, I'm going to stick with David Smith as the example. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is all these things have those found objects that are welded together, have a vocabulary that you can't shake and you're unable to, you're unable to, it's a forced vocabulary in the direction of your sculpture that you're taking advantage of. When I look at your work, your work is creating these these structural items that could possibly you see that they could be found objects cut from you know with the rivets and with the angle and the, with the rebar not the rebar t- I'm sorry I even said rebar there I didn't say rebar it was a mistake <laughs> when I talk about I beams and stuff like that you've created these objects that give off they give off the connotation of construction give off the connotation of found object steel sculpture, but you've created them from scratch and you've made them almost whimsical. Do you think that your work is more about the material than it is about the final outcome?
2: Yeah.
1: Elaborate.
2: <laughs> I kind of I mean, wanted to just let that breathe for a second because it's good, it, no, it was it a good was such an easy answer, but yeah, I mean, I'm, as far as sculpture is concerned, you know, I'm I'm really only interested in, in metals that are forgeable. Hmm. So it's process. Like, I don't really consider it material as much as I consider it process driven. Hmm. And then it's just like the process of forging. It doesn't lend itself to every metal. So I'm not interested in every metal. But you know, I am interested in steel and iron because they're really forgeable, but, you know, also to a lesser degree, like bronze, table brass, stuff like that. So it's, it's process other than material, but, you know, let's be real. I'm not buying sticks of, of bronze, two inch square bar by 20 feet. I'd broke, but, um, so steel obviously is a, is a good uh, material to
1: use for a lot of stuff. And that concept of the, 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 you know, so when I always think about forging in general, blacksmithing, and and, and if this is the first time you're ever hearing about blacksmithing, if you you read the, if you read that you're you're, if you're here from that Food and Wine episode, we were uh, issue that I was mentioned in. Blacksmithing is taking steel and sticking and getting it hot, and then it turns into it gets hot enough that it's a plastic like. Quality, and then you can hit it with a hammer on an anvil and you can actually manipulate the mass. I've always enjoyed the concept of the economy of the material and the geometry that you create through the manipulation of mass. And it brings me to something that I, I saw you wrote. You, you had a question and answer. I'm going to b- jump back and forth. Just bear with me. One thing you did in this Q&A it was on Instagram, a lot of people were asking you, there was a question. Somebody asked you, what steel do you use when you make your tongs? Yeah. And your answer was so great. Right. Because it was the answer. It stuck with me. And it was such a great answer because the answer was, I'm more interested in the geometry of the steel and less of the material.
2: Strengthen the geometry, Strengthen not the alloy. The
1: That's right. That's something that you must have learned in graduate school or even no. in Alfred.
2: No, no that was now this that's a very now thing that's that's what that's like what i'm learning now huh. i look at all my tongs but at the same time, and i use min- coil spring because i didn't know i didn't know how to make tongs. so i had to use coil spring in order for them to be strong enough to function my tong obsession huh. is very like uh it's very johnstown
1: so your journey is, is this, it's a very wonderful journey for you. It must be, I mean, starting from, you know, making the sculpture and being able to kind of, then you're at Carbondale, not to mention, I'm, being, I'm bringing you back and forth, don't, don't worry, I got you. You were also, you were an assistant to Claudio Botero at, at, for, an, for, a, for a demonstration
2: kind of. I wasn't like on the official invite list, but I kind of weaseled my way in there because Tell me
1: this is this is something that this was like a when I looked at your resume, I was just like, I gotta talk about this. Was that this on week. the resume? Yes, certainly we well, may have better change mm-hmm. it before change it before Friday. I mean if you don't want people to see it. Well, but I it mean was, that's
2: probably at the time I felt like I needed to bulk out the resume, but now I look back at it and i Probably didn't really contribute enough to put that on my resume. All right.
1: But. Well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Well, don't worry because I most know. of my listeners don't even know what a resume is, so <laughs> don't have to worry about it. They're googling what a resume is. But I mean, you were able to be around people like Claudio sure. I mean, Do you think, as I mean, because that's you were there when you were in graduate school. You were you were deep in the thrusts of you know. High level artwork and high level sculpting and high level blacksmithing, and then you got to be able to even just be around Botero. Right, that must have been pretty inspiring.
2: Yeah, it was. It was very inspiring. I mean, I you know, the, my whole Carbondale experience was inspiring because I, I saw forging in a way that I'd never seen it before, and um, you know, it was a real good bug into the forging community because before. Carbondale I was living in the woods in Vermont making these sculptures and then I'd put them in a corner and that was it and there was no Instagram back then uh barely anything on YouTube and that that's kind of what like got my juices flowing to like get out of there was I felt real secluded and then I went when I was in New York City I worked real hard but I was doing like high-end stainless steel fabrication and structural stuff and fancy restaurants Stuff like that so like it was very far from the sculpture that i wanted to create and then in vermont it was very far from a community that i needed to kind of like you know grow as an artist. and carbondale not only did it you know show me forging in this entirely different light but it also you know opened my eyes to like the conferences and, and other blacksmiths and then that's when i did get onto social media, which was pretty eye opening at the time as well. So it was, it was, it was all that stuff. You know, Claudio it's, is a great blacksmith for sure. Um, but you know, there was, I was so inspired by my peers more than anything. which was best because you got to care of the shop. Then.
1: Right. That's, that's more, that's almost more important. I mean, being inspired by the people you're around. Yeah. I mean, there's that old expression, don't be the smartest person in the room. Right. You know, it's, I, I think that, I would imagine. I'm, I'm once again. I'm this is speculation. Is that where you started to do more team forging, yes. striking, and stuff like that? I never
2: struck with a sledgehammer before Carbondale.
1: Huh. Who, who who brought you into? Did you guys just figure that on your own, or no? Well, you know,
2: well, the Carbondale experience has a lot to do with who you share it with. And I was really, really lucky because I entered Carbondale the same year as Haley Woodward. So. Um, and he had done forging at Austin community college at, at that program, they did do striking and tool making and things like that. So he, you know, showed me the, showed me the light for a lot of that.
1: Because I try to explain to a lot of people, you know, I on when I'm on knife talk or, or, or this, you know, because people who are listening to this podcast are very solitary, you know, you're, you're listening to this, you're in your shop, you're in your garage, mm. A lot of people have to learn, the same, same way I learned, I learned, you learn forging by yourself and you don't learn it with a team striking. So I try to explain to people that team striking is almost like a different language, a completely different language from doing it on your own.
2: Well, it's really helpful for sculpture or contemporary work, um, but it's also, it's a little bit, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm going off topic here, but like, i rely on it so heavily and i've never i've always worked with people since carbondale so i've always had the luxury of having somebody to strike for me in my shop at at any given moment but um, it's interesting because it's so useful but it's it's um, i I don't really want to say it's dangerous but like we're taking well, there's these trust involved there's trust involved but i'm talking more like the tools um, like a broken tool or whatever so you're taking like striking which has been used in forging since the beginning of the craft but now you've got people like me and my peers that are using it for sculpture so we're using these traditional tools and techniques in very non-traditional ways and that can create some problems with the tooling because The tooling's not meant to be hit, you know, at an angle, swinging a hammer like a baseball bat, but, like, we do that kind of stuff. So it's really, like, transformed the way I think about the geometry of my tools and the way I heat treat them so they can withstand this abuse that contemporary blacksmiths put on the tools that traditionally weren't designed to be used that way.
1: So what I would imagine is is being able to be around. Oh, P.S. Haley, you know, you and Haley are definitely a team. Your team, whether like it or not, he reached out to me not too far after you reached out to me after the Nick Angier. I'm gonna have him on too. He's he's a fascinating guy. You guys are like you guys are. You have some sort of mind meld or something like that. It must be from the days of Carbondale. Uh, but, probably yeah. But I would imagine that creating this team striking. Or starting to do more team striking with 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 Haley and getting involved with having these tr- these trusting uh, trusting relationships with people helping you build the sculpture not only changes the way you look at your work, it starts to make you focus about your tools. Totally. Totally. And that has to change the way you look at your work.
2: Well, because and simply put, like a power hammer on, only goes up and down, right? And you can't really forge angles or. You can't really tilt, tilt the tool. Like I'm always tilting the tool. Hmm. And if you tilt the tool under a power hammer, it's going to kick it right out and it's really dangerous, but your striker can match
1: the angle of your tool. And that's invaluable. Right. That's right. I don't have to look. Like I said, it's a, I feel like, I don't like to say the word lucky. I like to say the word fortunate. I feel like your path was forged without we unfortunately use that expression <laughs> with a degree of I mean there's a beauty to the evolution of your work and your your evolution towards you know how you went out you you, you started to do more demos you do more teaching You taught all over the country how did you get involved with the center for middle arts uh, because that's, because just to let you know, I mean, we said we said we we're ten years around each other. Yeah. We're still ten years. We're still zigzagging away, but it's just like you know, five years, five years five ten years still.
2: Right. Well, I, uh you know, my lease was up at Carbondale in, in two weeks, and I saw advertisement on Facebook for a partner slash manager needed for a metal shop in, uh, New, you know, the Lower Hudson Valley in New York, and it turned out to be, that was, it was, well, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it's really a fine architectural metal smith. Um, the That's right. for metal arts didn't really exist more than twice a year, but, um, so that was, but it was under the same shop. So, you know, I sent, sent my images and, and resume over and, you know, Rhoda seemed interested. And, uh, so I flew out there real quick to make sure it was legit. And, uh, yeah. It took, you know, it took the position or whatever. It's, a,
1: this is the fascinating, this is the fascinating thing. And, and, you know, this is something when I'm preparing for talking to you and talking about, you know, the, what the Center for Metal Arts is now, you've, you, when I, when I got the, I worked for fine art, arch, fine architectural metalsmiths was the key spot. It was not a key spot. It was the main part of the company. It was fine architectural metalsmiths, and then they had the Center for Metal Arts. And the Center for Metal Arts was a place where they would have teachers come in twice a year, something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the main body of the business was, you know, fabrication. Mm-hmm. And the Max, the, the Max had hired me, and I was there for a few years uh, with John Ledford and stuff. And I, I ended up leaving uh, regardless. And one of the things that's interesting to me is I talked to John Ledford. John Ledford used to be there. You guys had the kind of like a he went out and you went in, and it was like a it was a total change of situation. When I was there, Ed Mack really was focusing on the fine architectural metalsmiths part, and it was the fabrication. And we were doing the railings, we were doing the, you know, spaghetti rails and you know, all this stuff. And and the Center for Metal Arts was very separate. When he passed away. I get the feeling that, I mean, I always felt that Rhoda, it wasn't, her heart wasn't, I mean, her heart wasn't into being a fabricator. Her heart wasn't even being into, I don't even know if it was being into the metal business. So, for her to find you and to, like, breathe life into what was happening is fascinating. Well, it because, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, no, I was, it's fascinating to me because it was a total change. I mean, all of a sudden, it's a whole different thing, and at the time you know, the teaching was really, I mean, it was very, The it was a minor part. It was almost to the point where it was like, it was, it was just an ad, it was an added benefit, but it wasn't, there was no, We there weren't students coming from all, there were, you know, every so often you'd, he'd have some people come from Florida or something like that or there was, but it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of students. I mean, they weren't like trying to say, they weren't saying, we're going to turn this into a school and this is the school that's going to change everything. It was like, it was a part of the, the shop. It was part of the, cachet of the building for the most part
2: well it was a, it was uh it was difficult because you know rhoda still wanted it to be an architectural business when i got there hmm. and pushed really hard to continue the architectural business to get um architectural jobs and you know big high-priced jobs that were you know installed in the city and gates and handrails and all that kind of stuff and uh i never really saw that aspect of forging to be like a successful avenue um Hmm. it never was really why i got interested in the craft and i totally like went there because i saw the potential for the teaching i i didn't understand how minimal it was when I got there. Like I sort of went there under these pretenses that it was right. like a forging school. And then when I got there, it was like, well, there were only like two workshops here. And right. my check didn't say right. Center for Metal Arts. It said fine architectural metalsmith and and oh here's a handrail you have to build and install in New York or whatever. So I worked really hard to flip the business model because hmm. We were losing, like, it was, a like, architectural work in that shop. When I got there was a losing battle. Yeah. Big time. And, at the, and then I was started to create these classes, and they were filling up like that. So people were, like, chomping at the bit to learn forging, but I couldn't get a, a, a forging job to save my life.
1: Right. I, I think one of the things is, I don't think... I don't think that Roe—I don't think she knew—I think she knew what she knew from when she was married—when Ed was alive. He was taking on jobs, and she was kind of, like, more or less, you know, helping at these—you know, the administration part of it. I don't necessarily know if she wanted to be involved with the school, and I think that there was a lot of fear of uh, insurance. I think that there was a lot of fear. I don't know. There was a lot of fear in regards to creating something that was going to be bigger than it was.
2: Yeah, it's funny cuz we never really talked about that. Like when I would create a workshop and it would have you know eight students in it, that that never really came up so I never really saw that. But when I walked in the door the first day and there was like an intern that was there. I think John John Ledford's last day was literally the day before I got there. And she was MIG welding a gate with parts ordered from the king architecture catalog that were textured on like a hebo machine or whatever when there's like a power hammer right there right and i was like this is bonkers like is this really what i walked into and so you know obviously i didn't really want to do that but people it's hard to sell forge work it's hard to sell forge work because it has a it, it traditionally, it's hard to give the, cl- the clients always, ha- it has a very specific aesthetic. Like a lot of people see it as like curly twisty, leafy. And especially with, you know, the clients that Rhoda had, which are fine, but um, I was more interested in like contemporary work and process, stuff like that. And a lot of clients don't, it's, you know, the biggest part of getting a job that has forge work is like selling it to the client, the forging is the easy part. And so I walked into a shop that didn't really want to put any effort into that aspect of, of an architectural
1: business. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There were, there were, even when I was there, there were many days where it was like, you know, we could do this. You know, there, there was, a there was, I think that there, I think that, I think that the best part of, of you coming there was you, getting it because i think that it, you created something that superseded what it was meant to be and to the point where the only similarities between what center for mental arts is now and what the center for mental arts is when i was there was you have a couple of power hammers you guys saw there's a couple of anvils i recognize but and then the name and that's it like there's there's it's i when you got there i definitely remember and i had been away for a while i, I left. And then I came back a couple years later at a, John, uh, Ed had passed away and John needed some help with some welding and I was welding for him for a couple weeks. And I kind of squared things away with, with Roe, and we, we, I never left on bad terms with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I just got this feeling like there was definitely this, you know, I get the feeling that she'd. She, Things needed to change in a drastic way, and I don't think it was just the person. I think it was the mindset, mm-hmm. and I think that the fact that you were able to kind of come in there and just kind of breathe new life into really what it is, is is stunning, is stunning, and I remember the first time I met you, I came by to when you got there, I, I, I remember- being trying to be as supportive as possible in terms of just giving you all the best vibes as possible. I put myself out there to help you as much as I could. I remember that was the first time I met John Ariani. This was the first time I met Sunset Forge. That was the first time I met Alex Steele. It was at the Jake James. You had Jake James come in and teach this amazing sculpture class. Mm. And what was amazing about it is the idea that these people were flying across the world to be involved in this group sculpture project. That's a tough sell. How'd you get that? How'd you, how'd I mean, you that's an easy sell.
2: That? You know what's a tough sell? is trying to sell totally. a client a rivet over a weld. That's a tough sell. But <laughs> when, when you've got some uh, internationally renowned sculptor coming to your shop, I mean, I, I had to turn people down for that shop. There were just too, wow. too many people. And that is the difference between what I, you know, the creating an educational shop versus an architectural shop.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it's also the willingness to have people come into your shop. It's the willingness to have, uh, it's the willingness to have, you know, people coming in your shop and creating a curriculum. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you did, I, you, when I came and I saw you guys with the, the group striking for me, I mean, like I said, it was a, it was a totally foreign language to me. Mm-hmm. And I was so, I was so, I was, I, at this age, at the age I'm in now, I'm very much more philosophical than I was when I was in my 20s. I'm far more interested as, as a student of what happens and, what, and what, I do, what I do and I don't know. I had this incredible, I just like loved watching you guys all work together. I loved the first time I ever saw a set hammer, first time I saw a striker in real life. And it was something that like, I mean, it was, it was beautiful and seeing it in the space that I used to be in it was this, be- it was a longing. I had a longing and being like, I, I'm a little too, I, I came in too late. I came in too late. <laughs> yeah. So Florida, New York, you, you get everything and then you you're heading down to Johnson, PA. Mm. What was that like? How did, it's such a huge, it's a huge difference. I mean, there's, uh, from- you go ahead. I was going to say that there's just a monumental difference between the confines of the Ice Forge, this giant barn, to this facility. I mean, it's like I don't even think "facility" is a big enough word to say what you're where the Center for Mental Arts is. Tell me, how would you find out about Johnson, New York? I mean, Johnson, PA.
2: I think can can we still talk about Florida real quick? Whatever you whatever you want. I mean, when I got there to to Florida. Uh, I was like, okay, cool. This is it. You know, I'll, I'll be here forever. This is, you know, big shop with a lot of potential and equipment and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like the program that I was growing outgrew that shop three years. And um, what I couldn't really do is offer very much. Long term programming, but I was really like yearning for that because there is certainly a place for the, the one day, two day coat rack, you know, bottle opener spatula workshop. But, you know, I, I really want to educate more longer term and uh, provide a facility that can facilitate that kind of program. And I I wasn't really able to do it in New York and I kind of like macked out at that facility. And um, you know, I didn't really realize it at the time until I found Johnstown. And then when I found Johnstown, <clears throat> I came there specifically for the uh, historic industrial Ford shop. But very quickly realize the potential that the city had to facilitate growth, DMA, not only like on what I call our campus now, which we have four buildings from one in New York, but also student housing. And it's like when we, you know, everybody sees the big Friggin' power hammers and shit, and they're like, oh, I, you know, whatever. But what the most transformative thing for CMA has been student housing, and hmm. buying student housing in Johnstown is affordable. Buying student housing in New York is not. No. So you know, once we were able to acquire student housing, we have this old eighteen hundred church rectory that can house ten students. And it's within walking distance to the shop. And now I'm able to have six-month internship program, one- and two-week workshop, six-week workshop, conferences, like all this kind of stuff. And it's really been super helpful.
1: it's, it's, It's amazing. It's amazing. And the fact that you're able to actualize that change from this shop where you were maxed out i mean you know new york one one of the benefits of the of the florida new york shop was it was relatively close to the city to the point where people could you know they could travel you know whatever but you're right i mean people were having I mean, you, know, you get you know you would to rent the car people were flying you would to rent the car you gotta all this the fact that you're able to have this huge facility where you can actually house people
2: yeah
1: changes the curriculum it's transformative sudden, yeah i mean it I changes was, the, yeah totally
2: ahead. Can it just teach. You could teach whatever you want. You could offer whatever you want. I mean, there's a difference between like, you know, somebody coming to CMA now and and, and paying for five nights at CMA housing versus staying at the holiday inn in Fourway for five right. nights. You know, it's not one, it's not desirable. Two, it's more expensive. And the housing is is really like uh contributes to the community atmosphere of CMA. It's like, you don't go to your separate hotel room. And now the students are like cooking dinners together and having breakfast together and sharing beers and sitting out by a fire. And like, it's part of the whole experience, you know, it's immersive. Yeah. And then, you know, the instructor stays there sometimes too. So it's like, not only are you interacting with this person in the shop and they're teaching you about the aspect of the craft that they're, professional in but also you get to like go spend time with them later and and learn about them personally and like you know how the two intermingle and all
1: that Wow, it's an intimate situation yeah totally so how did you how did you find johns how did you know that this this opportunity was around i i love this story man um
2: good it's it's uh Pretty funny, but you know, I saw a picture of that double arch hammer on Facebook and in one of the blacksmith groups, probably like one of the Pennsylvania area blacksmithing group had posted it or whatever and I was like, Huh, I just you know, that that's I found out where it was and I realized it was only like a you know, a couple hours away or whatever and I and I I create I called the Historical Society and I scheduled an appointment to see it. And I was just like I I just want to see this. I've never seen a hammer like that person. It seems like a cool shop or whatever so i I scheduled the the appointment and came to Johnstown to see the shop and everything and I was in there and it was very I was awestruck at everything for sure, and then was being shown around by the head of the historical society and he's talking about how uh his big goal You know, he's the one that saved that building from being demolished by Bethlehem Steel. He's the one that turned it into a National Historic Landmark. He's the the single reason why those hammers are still there and why that building is still standing. And he's talking about his goal is that he wants it to be reopened as a functioning black shop by a not-for-profit educational forging school.
1: So you're you're basically saying the waiter showed up with a silver platter and said, "Here, sir, here's your here's your dinner." <laughs>
2: kind of. And he was like, and then I he didn't know what I did at the time. I was just some blacksmith that wanted to see the shop or whatever. And I said, "Just because kind of, it's all so friggin' matter of fact." I was like, "Huh? That's exactly what I do in New York." And he goes, "You want to move your school here and reopen this shop?" And I said, "Yes." And then we worked really hard for a year to make that a reality, but um, wow, it was kind of as simple as that, but it was all about being at the right place at the right time, that shop being in the right city. You know, he had searched for a blacksmith to reopen that shop for 10 years, and he'd been to a band of conferences, put ads out in local chapter newsletters, and, you know, to the best of his ability, spread the word in the forging community that, this shop was available and, and and there for the taking, basically, but it's such a monumental task of refurbishment. It nobody approached it from with a not-for-profit organization, and the only way I think somebody's going to refurbish that shop and run it again is through uh,
1: philanthropic grant fund. So why? I mean, I'm, mean, this is with all due respect, what stop what, in the 10 years, how come it took 10 years?
2: Cause nope, everybody would walk in there and be like, wow, this is freaking sweet, but I don't have the money to do it.
1: So what gave you the idea? What gave you the, like, I mean, I feel like you have so much inner fortitude. It's like oozing at your ears. Well, how <laughs> did you get the idea to do a nonprofit? And how did you find out how to do a nonprofit? Well, it's a big
2: undertaking. It is a huge undertaking, and and you can ask, you know, Dan and Kyle, the guys. That, I obviously still work with Dan, but Kyle worked with us in 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 Florida, New York, and there was an entire year where they didn't see me, and I barely forged anything because I was doing paperwork, turned the business into a not for profit. But I knew, uh, you know, and I was so naive at the time. I there was a a foundation that I knew was supportive for, for blacksmiths and foraging. And so my thought was, and they support educational institutions. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can get a grant for them. So I wrote a grant application and they approved, you know, the the grant, but under the stipulation that I was a 501c3 organization, of which I was not so i couldn't get the money
1: what is that what is a five what is that
2: the not for profit so i couldn't get the money and then my wheels were just spinning right because i didn't want to i was like making railings and gates for me in that shop was dead i would hate forging right now if that's what i did i wanted to at the time like the the school was taken off and it was going right. really well in the was building. We were creating this strong, like visiting artist workshop series, attracting people from all over the place. And that's where I wanted to put all my energy because that's where I saw the most return on investment and where my heart was. And, um, and I just, you know, from research or whatever, I thought like, well, if I was a not-for-profit that would, um, opened me up to grant funding and you know grant funding can help a, a school grow hmm. so that's what i did and I'm, I'm pretty fortunate at the moment because you know i am a not-for-profit that does create a certain amount of revenue from you know its workshop school sales we do a small amount of commission work so i don't rely i don't rely on grant funding And I never want to be the kind of Mm. business that relies on grant funding, but I use it to uh, to grow. You know what I mean. You you write grants to expand, not to like pay your electric bill.
1: One of the interesting things about you, especially, and just based on dealing with dealing with friends of mine who are bladesmiths or blacksmiths, or I find that people with this extraordinary ability of of very very detail oriented work they slip into this this slip into the concept of this details the details and they miss the big picture and when i look at you I, I don't see that at all i see that the complete opposite i'm i worry for friends of mine who are focused on these details but then they miss the big picture what got you to figure out how did you have the inner fortitude to do this this is a i mean if you if you ask me to figure out how to do grants and stuff like that i my eyes are rolling back in my head
2: i mean i don't really know i mean it's like i was doing everything in my power to not rely on a handrail job right and you know i would much rather spend my time writing a grant about the importance of of a quality forging education to the craft community than you know measuring some rich guy's handrail and compromising what i really want to do with the material to make this person happy and then not even making money because i screwed up a measurement
1: right right (laughs) <laughs> right like, you this is this is the thing I mean, when we talk about I mean I just there's the, obviously you saw the bigger picture in order to get to the destination that you wanted. you understood these hurdles. I, I find that a lot of like my listeners who are you know, like I said, most of my listeners, they're in their shop, they're in their garage, they want to be kept company. They're trying to figure out how to get to the next level. Sometimes I think that a lot of people don't have the hunger for learning. I feel like they have the, I don't think that they have the hunger for putting the time into it, but it's also of not being able to focus on your goal. What's interesting to me, especially about you is, you know, once again, you know, your Instagram and your social media have been amazing in terms of, I love you watching your, if you don't follow uh, Hand Forge in VT on Instagram, you're making a huge mistake. Your stories are very great because they're all about the process of making, you know, you see these beautiful pictures of inside the shop and the lights coming in and that everything is immaculate and you see the, the you see the tongs and the different ways you're making the tongs and stuff. The interesting thing is is because now a majority of the people learn how to do stuff online and they don't make the the necessary decision. To go to a school, you make it very hard not to want to go.
2: I didn't catch that last part. Something happened. It's
1: would, would okay. Just, sometimes these things pass. Just what I was saying is, is that that in regards to the way people learn, right. learning visually and learning on YouTube and learning on and the, the fact that your Instagram, especially your stories, where you're showing the shop and you're showing the light coming through and everything like that, you make it very hard not not to to want to not come down you make people want to come down to Johnston, pa yeah and basically what what is interesting to me is is now especially you you have these classes you got you have an extraordinary i mean the the people that you got salem straub coming down there you had nick nick angers on the way by the way make sure you know it's nick angers and i'm telling you why i know because i know i know because i called his number and I got his answering machine because he was very cagey. If it's Nick Anger, Nick Anger, you call his answering machine, it's Anger. So I said, all right, well, because he was very cagey, you can call me whatever you want. I'm like, no, I want to call you. What-. Hmm. I got the inside scoop. You call his answering machine, Anger. You have these extraordinary teachers, and it's just, I, I, I would imagine <sighs> that. How many? What do you? What are you? What are you looking forward to?
2: Well, you know. Getting extraordinary teachers is, it's hard. And I mean, you know, providing the student with a really wonderful learning experience is basically the layman's mission of the Center for Metal Arts. But just as important is providing the instructor with a great teacher. And that all comes down to the facility that you teach in and that you learn in. So, I, you know, I spend, and this is where the not-for-profit thing is so important, is like so much of what I do isn't directly revenue generated. Like, you know, when I finish making tong sets for all the students, I don't get a paycheck for that or like the MA doesn't get a check for those but when the students come and they don't have a problem holding their material and they're able to create these wonderful things and then instructors are able to teach really well and efficiently because their students aren't struggling they come back take another workshop right you know what I mean so it's like the so much of my job is is working on the facility itself to make everybody who comes there have the best experience they can have and then you know somebody like nick for instance yeah i would hope and i don't want to speak for him but like you know we work really hard to, to make sure he's got everything you need students have everything they need and it's like if the teacher wants to come back that's that's a really great feeling yeah i mean we're always changing it up we have a lot of people that do come every year, are like Nick, um, but you know, changing it up is also really important too. But. Oh,
1: 100 percent. I mean, hundred percent. So now that we've gotten down to Johnstown, you were saying that that we were, we would talk earlier about how um, the G, it's the geometry of the forging that uh, that it gives you the strength. How did how did your your move to Johnstown change the way you work? Ah. <sighs> because <laughs> it is it's a i feel like every one of these steps was in a very intrinsic part of your journey
2: yeah totally i to mean right right where... now um i'm just like completely enamored with industrial ford technology. and it's because i every day when i go to the shop i'm slapped in the face with it it's everywhere it's all around the the, the tools and equipment that they use in that shop and then you know the buildings themselves not necessarily forged components there but just this just reeks of industry and then you know that is just something that without being consciously aware of it I've always been interested Hmm. Um, but now that it's here or now that I'm here in sort of the heart of american industrial forging i i totally inspired by it and use it you know inspiration from it in everything from my sculptural work to my tool making um so it it literally is like transformed the way i think about it and i can't help but you know i we've only refurbished one of the large uh, power hammers but even running that was transformative um, from, from the way I think about forging now but then we got a mini steam hammer and we use it as a learning tool for the larger one and uh, you know make make maquettes with it and stuff but just using a utility hammer like that and and the control you can have and the sort of like flexibility between single blow to repetitive blow and then you know, working—it's just like striking. Almost, it's a very team, team atmosphere, team sort of—you know, whatever. Um, it's it's it's
1: totally—it's everywhere, and it it shows in my work. So, can you just describe the difference between like a regular power hammer to or a power? Describe the difference between the power hammers that you have and the steam power hammer that you that you're using.
2: Uh, my typical experience has been with self-contained air hammers or to a smaller degree mechanical hammer of which you know they forge uh much quick very quickly like repetitive blows and that's really good for uh breaking down stock you know open die forging that kind of stuff we use a certain amount of handheld tooling on hammers like that but when I first started using a utility hammer um, with an operator, it it changed the way I literally changed the way I thought about forging because we started to be able to do these really deliberate uh, single blows that could be anywhere from, you know, so light that they wouldn't crack an egg to like earth chatter. Hmm. And then, you know, I just really love the deliberacy of that. And then to go back to like, You know, how I thought, how my comment about being real interested in efficiency is like when I forged under the 3,000 pound Chambersburg for a while, you know, I I like, I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I didn't know how to make a taper and I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. And like, one, I probably didn't have material big enough to even justify using that hammer, but the dies were like so big that it was just, everything was just getting blown out. And it's hmm. like, I I use really small dies on my self-contained hammers because they're more efficient than a big die. So when I stepped up to these bigger hammers that had big dies, what became super important was the tooling. So in order to make a taper, I would use a handheld bowler tool and I would leave the material still on the die like you and i think of forging a taper and you're pulling that material as the hammer's forging well this is so big that i could just leave the material where it was and move the fuller Hmm. because you needed to concentrate that blow and get the material to move in the direction you wanted it to otherwise flat die and flat die is just going to go in every direction and then you're not controlling it at all and so now like just learning about that and be like, Ooh, get it tickling that funny bone. And then having the 400 that operates the same way as the 3000, you know, we're using it like that. And then we're creating these smaller forgings that we can then go over to the 3000 and have some sort of, we can scale it up and have predictable results.
1: Hmm. So I would imagine that that was it was a transformative because it really took your, because it's because you say you have an operator so someone's sitting on the side of it yeah and they're and they're instead of it you know using a foot pedal you have a i don't know what you what you call it an actuator a brake. i have no idea what you call it i mean and and, and then you're having communication
2: mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. two other yeah, people it's crazy you know and there's not a lot of people out there left that run these hammers or have run hammers like this but um and then and then there's a guy like me is like i have no interest in making parts for industry. Like hmm. I want to use these hammers to make sculpture, but i, I want to know how to use them properly. Hmm. And then um so just trying to like find anybody that has experience on these things has been really difficult but also rewarding because there are some out there, but then you know then you, you hope that this old industrial blacksmith is open minded enough to like work with an artist per se, yeah. you know what I mean? Um,
1: it's it's tough. It's a tough, it's a, it's once again, you're kind of at these two points. Well, here's a
2: good, here's a good story about it. Like we, Perfect. we, we fired up this hammer and uh, you know, we, we took it apart and made sure everything was cleaned and oiled. And we, we selected this hammer to refurbish because there was nothing on it that was broken. It was the last one that they had operated before the mill shut down. So it was in the best condition. So we didn't have to remachine any parts or anything like that. I simply took it apart, what we needed to, some of the valves cleaned them, put them back together, plumbed the air to it, stuff like that. And then, and then you got, you know, guys and gals actually, you know, standing there like with a functioning 3000 pound utility hammer who've never used anything like that before not not only a hammer that operates this way but a hammer of that size. and so we found out that there, there is one blacksmith left in johnstown still alive who worked in that shop on that hammer and we invited him to the shop and he's just the nicest guy in the world but i'm super excited i'm like oh man this guy's gonna like you know tell us how to use this hammer um, because you can imagine how nervous you are when there's air to this thing. You've got your hands on the handles, you have no idea what lifting one is going to do. But anyway, so he comes to the shop, and you know, I, he's real interested in the fact that there's a concrete floor now and it's not dirt anymore. But <laughs> I finally like steered him over to the hammer. That's all he cares That's about. That's all he cared about. But I was like, you know, we got it running again. I was like, can you, can you show us about these handles? And he's like, never touched them. He's like, I worked on this hammer for 30 years, and I never touched those handles. Because somebody else sat there for 30 years and touched those handles. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, he wasn't the driver. And it was, I don't know if it was a union job, you know. But I mean, it's like somebody was hired as the driver, and somebody was hired as the blacksmith. Right.
1: You know, and and then it's like so you don't want to, they don't want to teach the replacement.
2: Yeah, and, it, and it's just I was just shocked. I was like the second we got air to that, you know, everybody everybody I was with wanted to touch those handles and yeah. to not have that desire was really really interesting.
1: What were they using that machine for?
2: Everything. Like this shop was a, it was it was built in the early 1860s. And it was one of the first buildings that the steel mill built to, to build a steel mill. So um, it was a blacksmith shop, forge shop, that its main uh, purpose was to service the mill. Huh. So they weren't making like products for sale or architectural work or anything like that. They were They were creating a steel mill, basically. And we all know that if you want to create machinery or anything like that, you need forged parts. And this was the shop that made the parts that made a steel mill. I mean, in the 1860s, you you know, everything has to be self-sufficient. You can't call McMaster car and get a length chain. Right. You know what I mean? So that's what this shop was. And then um, as the steel mill grew, there was a lot more forge shops, different, um, parts of the steel mill doing lots of different forging operations but this was the one of the first buildings erected and now the la- the oldest remaining building of the steel mill
1: wow so when the guy said to you i know i have no idea what those those handles do who pulled the hammer handles the first who the who pulled the handles i did who's the first one
2: me and, and how did you feel well the ram lifted about an inch and i Fucking threw it down real fast because I was nervous. <laughs> how long
1: how long how long did it take you to get it to the point where it was doing what you wanted to do? What was the learning? Oh curve god,
2: like? it still I mean it's still we're still learning about it. But I mean I'd say like a good a good example, and I can't know exactly what the measurement is, but there's like three feet of stroke. Like when the when the ram's at the top between the bottom of the top die and the bottom die is like three feet of stroke and for two weeks none of us really had the had the the courage the, the courage to lift it up over <laughs> six inches
1: i refer to those the o-rings because you're clenching so hard you want to know how, <laughs> you want to know how, how hard you got to clench to make sure that uh
2: wow you know the best moment with that hammer was somehow we get managed to get the forklift in the shop because there's no overhead door in that shop right now they've all been kind of like bricked up over time but um we got the forklift in the shop and you know we used it to like build a cage on there so we can get up really high and, and work on the hammer and stuff like that and then after we got the parts off and cleaned and put back together i um i lifted the ram with the forks of the forklift and uh That was really satisfying and and quite beautiful but the best part was when i lowered the forks and the ram fell with forks you know because you're like oh i could lift the ram but it's just going to get stuck up there but it didn't it just it just fell like right with the forks and i that's when i was like oh my god this hammer's gonna work
1: jeez what it, I mean, the level of like it's a new exploration in your own in the own in your own facility, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And I know that I know that when I see the the videos of you taking the students in and there's that giant hammer, that's like what did you call it an arch double arch? That's a double arch. Now is that for like, is that do you think that's ever going to get going? Or? Yeah,
2: that's why I came. I'm going to run that hammer. And what are you going to do with it?
1: Make large scale forge sculpture. Wow, and you? Do you think that you're going to find anyone alive who's ever kind of worked on something like that? Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm friends with an industrial shop um, in West Virginia right now that run a double arch hammer.
1: How much? How much work do you think it is going to take to get that thing going? A lot. That I mean, saving that one for last, basically. How much more do you have before you get to that one?
2: Uh, two two more utility hammers and one self-contained, and then that one. And then, but then also like rebuilding the furnaces, and you know that shop doesn't have utilities or anything like that. So it's complete refurbishment of the building and the tools equipment. So it's the ways away.
1: You still love it? Oh yeah. Is this like? I mean, we're having I mean, a
2: conference there uh, this September, and and tell me, Jake James is it. going to be creating sculpture on the three thousand.
1: Wow. So you are actually—I know that you—you're actually working with uh, John Williams. A little, John Williams is going to come to teach a class, right? Yeah. And he's now a board member of Abana, right? So you're going to be heavily involved with Abana. No. 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 Hmm. I it was because I was under the impression that maybe you guys were going to do something with them. No, not at all. Okay. Because right. I see. Because I still see. I still see your shop. I mean, this is just like I'm excited for you because I mean, it's just like the, 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 thinking about, um, just thinking about all the things you have to build and all the excitement. And I mean, you have years and years before this really is where you want it to be. And that journey, that journey is, that's the exciting part too.
2: It is. It's so exciting that, you know, we refurbished that hammer basically like on our own time, you know, I mean, we did a lot, you know, well, I mean, when you, when you work all the time like what's the difference between your time and cma time but it's right. like it wasn't a project that i budgeted in in the cma yearly budget we just were so friggin pumped to do it that we just right. did it just, i mean i sprayed that thing with PB blaster for three weeks before i even touched a nut you know what i mean wow and so it's was like i'd go in there every morning with my coffee and got the can of PB and just would just soak it just soak it and you know what i mean it's like that was like how i meditated in the morning wow yeah
1: so so back to the classes and stuff like that one thing that is new i think and tell me more about this and this is interesting um is tell me about the notebook is it called a notebook
2: yeah i call it i call it the digital notebook
1: digital notebook
2: yeah it's something new that that i've been working on now for a little while um I'm not sh- quite sure the capacity at, at which we're going to do it, but just you know, an effort to put put something on par with our in-person educational program out there on the internet for for students that might not be able to like come to the shop or you know, with with all the COVID stuff. I understand that traveling is not very easy, and businesses are slower and half capacity and stuff so it really was kind of like something i've been wanting to do for a while but use this 2020 as an opportunity to like you know put together some classes and stuff like that
1: so will they be like video ca- classes or yeah how, they, how is it gonna work they're
2: totally video classes like but they're not live so um i have a filmmaker that i work with and he comes in the shop and and films these projects and then we edit them together and, and put out this like tutorial video basically. And, um, uh, I like it because it's not live because you can sign up for it and then you have it forever. And that's kind of like why hmm. I call it the digital notebook because, you know, I, I, I kind of see it as like a resource or a reference guide for, for aspiring blacksmiths that are learning and, you know, it's like when you take notes at a workshop, and then you're back in your shop. And you look back at your notes when you don't remember, or you need inspiration, or or something like that. Like this, kind of like the digit could be like the digital version of that, per
1: se. So anybody can go. anybody You're is it you? You pay for the classes, mm-hmm. or Yep. and then and then once you you sign in, you create a password, and then you have the ability to audit what classes that you want totally and then from the digital
2: yeah and then they all you know go into a library for you and then you can you can access them whenever you want and i work really hard with our filmmaker to like break them up into chapters that are clearly labeled that identify certain steps and so it's like you know i want it to be real easy for the participant to like go back and be like oh shoot I, i don't remember you know, what was the step after this? Or like, what was this measurement? You know, I couldn't remember. So you can go back, look in your library, and there's these clearly defined chapters that outline all that stuff for you and make it very easy for you to to go back and and
1: look at that stuff. This is very generous, because I remember that anytime I've ever taken a class, I had to take notes for a couple reasons. Usually it was because uh, Ed was making me take the classes and because he was also paying me I had to make sure that I knew what the fuck was happening <laughs> so I was constantly taking notes and what I noticed was a lot of people who do take classes mm-hmm. I mean maybe it was my generation or the generation who was going there a lot of them I make the joke they're standing around their car hard pants with their, their hands against their belts and they're just nodding in approval as in like that they're, they're like a peer or something like that right. and what always ends up happening is you miss this minute step that, that is the difference between failure, not failure and success, but like getting yeah. it and really getting it. Yeah. And, and and it's always like, well, you're supposed to hold it You know, at a 30-degree angle on it, not the sharp edge, but it's got to be at the rounded corner Mm -hmm. of the anvil. And there's always these tiny, tiny things. And I would always see these people. No one ever took notes. Right. And they were always missing. And I think now, especially with the way people learning on YouTube and the way people and everything else, they think that they know. And it's very similar to art, you know. A lot of times, people draw what they know, not what they see. And a lot, and for the for you to be able to provide this digital notebook is very generous. Yeah,
2: thanks. You know, it it our mission is to benefit the educational foraging community. So honestly, it's like the least I could do. It, the hard part for me was finding a an outlet for it that I was happy with. I mean, I'm super. Uh, obsessed with the quality of CMA from the tools that we create workshops that we offer to like what our presence looks like online. It's all really important. And it's like, I, I wanted to do something more than have a YouTube channel. And I, right. I, I see the value in those too, you know, and, and God bless everybody who's doing good on YouTube. Um, but you know, I, I really like, well, for one, I don't want to be like a character of myself, and I wanted to release this like quality forging content that you can, well, you can rely on from a, from a quality standpoint, but also something that really gives you maybe like a, a snapshot into what it's like to come to CMA, take a, an in-person workshop. So when I do these workshops that we record, I do them in the classroom. Like you're not, you're not watching me like, make something on my nasal and then you know you come to CMA and you're like well what 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 are we doing here it's like my the whole philosophy behind this is it's like complementary to our in-person forging curriculum so you know I'm using the same tools the students use same space the students use and all that kind of stuff so trying to create something like that that's super complementary
1: once again, I'm going to bring back your du- your duality. There's a duality within you that I'm I'm just constantly circling around like a like a vulture. The duality is is you're of a generation, and you're not a you're a young guy. You're you're in a generation where you have a real resume filled with the places that you've taught, <laughs> the places that you've interacted at, the demos you've done. Most people don't have this resume, and it's this concept of what we end up hearing a lot of is. I want to get like this. What videos do I need to watch? What books do I need to watch? And you've created this, the, the importance of the physically going to classes, physically putting in the hours and in the, in the work. But at the same time, the fact that you're addressing the fact that a lot of people learn online and people like once again, uh, once again, because of COVID people can't travel and you're addressing those issues. And in regards to how you're viewed online, Mm. it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's an extraordinary, once again, you're straddling the fence on these two things (laughs) that are like almost, almost like complete contrast. It's, Um, it's
2: important like, you know, to think about that. And, um, the, the, the relationship between the, in-person workshop and the digital notebook or the online workshop or whatever you want to call it. It's like, I, I like, for instance, on Friday we're releasing the one where I make the V bit tongs. I've been working so hard to research and I'm really proud of this, but I think it's a, it is a thing where I could see somebody coming to CMA to take that, that physical workshop. And then going home and purchasing the digital notebook of that workshop, because they're like, all right, i made them in person with Pat at CMA, and I took some pretty good notes. But let me also, you know, I really want to nail it. So let me get this too. And then I can have like the digital version of what I just experienced to reference whenever I want.
1: It's pretty, pretty cool. It's super cool because it reinforces what they've already learned. Right. How do you feel about the 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 fact that there's going to probably be a lot of people who are not going to come to the CMA and they're just going to get the digital notebook?
2: Uh, that's fine. You know, I mean, okay. I don't think there's any any substitute for in-person education, but clearly, if you feel like the digital notebook is enough, that's fine.
1: Well, your your resume, like I said, your resume speaks for itself in terms of, you know, his resume is not from digital learning. I mean, I, it's completely, you know, it's from
2: being there. I, I don't see, and this is what I've worked really hard to do, and only time will tell, but I'm not creating something that I feel like is going to compete with myself. So, like, okay. I don't think the digital notebook is going to show, like, less less students at CMA. And honestly, you know, I don't even know how many of these I'll make, but I'm thinking like two a year. Okay. So it's not okay. like, it's not going to be my main source of revenue or whatever. It's, it's just an effort to, to, to be out there in the online realm with everybody else that is out there and, and offering our level of education content on the online platform.
1: And in regards to uh, your your online persona, I I I give you uh, the golf clap. not the golf clap. The <laughs> real. I am appreciative of the fact. And I said this to Nick, um, the the seriousness that you take uh, COVID prevention. Oh yeah is something that really i mean i am i refer to myself as covid orthodox like i'm like a mental patient about it because a lot of it's because my wife deals with it every single day we all had it right we don't want it we don't want it we're covid orthodox i am very appreciative of the seriousness that you take it and it shows me and most people that your respect for your students in regards to that So I applaud you for that. It means a lot to me. No, It's
2: it's hard work, Um, but I do feel like, and this isn't like a shameless plug for CMA or whatever, but we are open this year and we will be running workshops and COVID hasn't gone away. But I, I, I feel like I've created a safe environment, and it's a shame that wearing masks has become politicized because I think it's a really good way to, be safe. So, you know, I have asthma, you know, and I work in front of a furnace and I wear a mask every day. And like, right. so does Dan and so does Courtney. And it,
1: it's not that big of a deal. You know, to me, I see it. I see it more along the lines of you get invited to a party and then all of a sudden before the party, you come down with the flu. Do you go to the party? No, you don't want to get other people sick. Right. You know, it's, so it's just like if, if it's the least you can do is wear a mask yeah. I mean, you're just you know. I don't want to show up to a party and all of a sudden I get a call you know, a week later, so you got everybody at the party sick. That's yeah. just just it's simple to me, but I appreciate the fact that you did that. And let's let's do shameless plug time. I mean, what's going on with you well, now I... and the CMA? And I tell you what, this has been so much fun, and I and I know that we're gonna do this. Again. We are doing this again. I'm mean, I know because you you were worried, you thought that this was gonna suck, and I I, I knew it wasn't gonna suck. This is a fantastic. I have the chills, the chills of of a good episode. So I'm super pumped, and you're always welcome back here but let's shameless plug time okay what do we plug in whatever you you tell me center for <laughs> mental arts as far as i'm concerned i, I mean,
2: don't go, know go to our website and sign up for something <laughs> sign up
1: for something come buy a t-shirt go buy a hammer like me you will put you know, he'll he'll look at the the list when he gets them <sighs> you know but you have classes coming up I know Salem Straub's coming in Will, uh John Williams who is just a remarkable young man I I tell you one thing just going back to Abana I I was I was a, I was a lapsed member of Abana and I sent a message to John Williams when I found out that he was going to be a board member it 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 showed me that they're this, this younger group getting involved with a And it was very enlightening. It was very, it was very, it made me feel, it also made, it made me feel as good as knowing that you were taking the center for mental arts and taking it somewhere. And I'm appreciative of that.
2: Well, you know what, what, I mean, what, how did you feel about a dude?
1: I'll tell you how I feel about a When I first heard about a it was like 3000 members it was a bunch of old guys i had no i didn't never like the whole long gray beards and praying to thor and getting involved with all that shit i i honestly saw blacksmithing as for me it was a discipline that i needed that transformed my life i joined abana i got the anvils ring i know the um i know the morels i like the morels ver- i like the morels very much it to me it seemed useless to me to a certain degree only because it's just not really it didn't it, it didn't show me things that i wanted to see oh is it useful now i'm i lapsed in membership so I, this, the answer is moot i mean i'm not a member anymore i don't get the anvil's ring but um, what else is there
2: then, there, there is the an anvil's there. ring
1: it's unfortunate because you know i i think that there is i think that i think the ability for some there is a definite need and there's a definite something that can be amazing. And I just don't see, I mean, I just, it doesn't interest me and it doesn't hold my interest. And, and I think that when I see, you know, when, when I see younger guys who I really respect, like John Williams getting involved, it makes me think like, all right, well, maybe this is going to turn around. And when I see you taking the Center for Metal Arts, and like I said, taking it from something that was completely nothing and basically transforming it and basically only just holding on to the, a couple of the hammers and a couple of the power hammers and the name, it really got me excited for the future. A youth is a, it's a youth, i I'm an older generation. And I, I'm finally coming to the grips with that and I'm fine with it. I am I'm now sitting, you know, enjoying watching what's going on. I'm enjoying it. And I'm looking at younger guys like you and younger guys kind of bringing it back. And this brings me to something that I've been asking my, I've been asking for years. What is, when I, when I ask what the role of the modern day blacksmith is you to me, Are the person that personifies the role of the modern day blacksmith, because you're taking old techniques, you're taking you're you're showing respect and you're showing uh, you're showing respect and importance of those old techniques, and then you're trying to be more innovative to a current environment. And that to me is very valuable, and I think that there I want the same thing for Abana, because I mean.
2: I mean, you yeah. know, forging right now, dude, is experiencing. And I'm sorry for trying to wrap this up, but um, no. it's experiencing like a. It's a really exciting time to be a blacksmith. I think using forging, the process of forging to create sculpture, is a relatively new idea. And new new from like the 1970s, but if you think about the entire lifespan of the craft of forging, that's that's relatively new, and to use it as an outlet for sculpture is super exciting and i think there's a lot of people right now that are doing some incredible things with like such a traditional and you know usually functional craft sculptural context it's it's super cool and i think that is part of the relevance of being a modern blacksmith because it doesn't really it's not a necessary craft for society like be so um, that's how like CMA tries to stay relevant with, with forging. And um, I also consider myself somewhat of a, ever since moving to Johnstown, a little bit of a like historic preservationist. So there's a lot of my interest now is making sure that like industrial forging and those particular hammers, and tools that I'm the steward of, you know, live to see another 150 years of use. But um, yeah, again, not to make, parts for industry because I'm not going to run them with a computer or use like a manipulator or any of that sort of stuff, but they'll be really relevant creating sculpture.
1: And there you have it. The modern day blacksmith, Pat Quinn. (laughs) I can't thank you enough for this has been so much fun for me. I've been trying to get you on for a while. And I, and you reached out to me after Nick and thank God for Nick, because the Nick, the Nick, the Nick, opened me, Nick opened me up to some heavies and I was super pumped about it. So I can't thank you enough for being here. I can't
2: thank you enough for inviting me.
1: Your, your door's always open. I have a, I have a, when I say doors always, that's going to be the thing. Doors always open for you. Anytime you want to come on, anytime you want to do anything, if you need anything from me, I've always got your back.
2: I know you always I'm, have, I'm, man. I really appreciate it.
1: I hope, because I believe in my heart that if you ever had a Christmas party, an employee Christmas party, I might be like, <laughs> I don't know, I might be maybe invited. I don't know if I can drive down to Johnstown, but I would like to know that it the intention of an invitation might be there. Yeah, of course. There you go. That's all I wanted. So <laughs> Pat Quinn, go follow Pat Quinn, guys. It's hand forged in VT on Instagram. Follow the center. It's at Center for Metal Arts. Yeah. Yep. On Instagram, go to their website. Go check out their stuff. Support this very important, probably one of the most important blacksmithing facilities in the United States. A hundred percent. You can go down there. Jesse Savage will teach you how to make a, a bottle opener. Yeah. I mean, you got you got a pile of people down there. It's going to be great. So go follow him, and you know what else to do. So I'm not going to, you know. Go get yourself some Axe Wax. <laughs> I can't start selling Axe Wax after an interview like that. But I mean, if you were to go get some Axe Wax, I'd appreciate it. Put in Full Blast 10 over at AxeWax.us. And then if you need some isotunes, go put in Full Blast 10 for $10 off on your isotunes. And, and 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 thank you once again. I appreciate it, Pat. You're You're a gentleman, and I appreciate it. And next week, we're definitely having... Young Will Stelter. I got him all squared away. All our technical problems are over (sighs) from my end. And we're going to see him there. We're going to see you next Friday. And have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.